Welcome to City of God. My name is Owen Strand. Today on the podcast, we are featuring part one of my message, The Church Prophetic from For the Church 2018. We thought that this was a message that dovetailed with the purpose of City of God. So we hope you enjoy part one. Stay tuned next week for part two. I'm here to speak on the church prophetic this morning, the prophetic church. In thinking out a beginning for this lecture title, this talk title, I, my thoughts went to Thomas Cranmer in the 16th century. Thomas Cranmer had played things just the right way in 16th century England. The Archbishop of Canterbury in the mid-1530s in England had seen the lines fall for him in pleasant places. When Henry VIII decided to create English Protestantism from whole cloth, Cranmer served as lead lawyer in nuancing canon law so as to allow Henry VIII to divorce Catherine of Aragon. Cranmer, a loyal foot soldier of Henry VIII's, became archbishop, the head, uh, under Henry of the Church of England, and with Thomas Cromwell, Cranmer led the Anglican Church in the 1530s, but especially the 1540s and early 1550s, in a distinctly evangelical direction. Things were going very well under young Edward, the boy king. But then Mary I took the throne in 1553, daughter of the wronged Catherine. And she brought the hammer crashing down on evangelical churches, dissenting churches, our brothers and sisters in the faith. During Mary's brief reign from 1553 to 1558, over 280 religious dissenters were burned at the stake. The first executions occurred over a period of five days in early February 1555. John Rogers, February 4th. Lawrence Sanders, February 8th. Roland Taylor, John Hooper, February 9th. You can read about these men and many others in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Thomas Cranmer, the imprisoned Archbishop of Canterbury, was at this time forced to watch two bishops named Ridley and Latimer walk into the flames and be burned to death for their evangelical convictions. This had an effect, a profound one. <laughs> Cranmer recanted his Protestant confession, swore off Protestant theology, and became a Catholic once more under pressure from Bloody Mary. This was a betrayal, a betrayal of his convictions and a missed opportunity for what we call prophetic gospel witness. This morning, we see a man in a yet more difficult place. John the Baptist, too, was imprisoned for his evangelical convictions. Unlike Cranmer, to this point in the story anyway, John gives us a faithful model of prophetic ministry. John urges us to be afresh, the prophetic church. Please turn with me to Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. I'm reading from the ESV. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Matthew 14, verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, Herod feared the people because they held John, him, to be a prophet. 
But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this holy text, as we remember the often forgotten end of the ministry and the life of John the Baptist, I pray, it is my prayer for us this morning, that you would stir us up to be, by the power of Christ, like John. In this strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This entire passage is a flashback, essentially. Matthew sets the stage by quoting Herod as saying that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead in verse 2. This is Herod's mistaken understanding as Herod is hearing about this man, Jesus Christ, who he does not understand, he does not really have a category for, and so he attempts to connect what Jesus is doing to what John the Baptist was doing before, that is, Herod put John the Baptist in the grave. Herod saw that something unique was happening in Jesus. He was both drawn to this and repelled by it. Herod was a governor in the time of Jesus. He was two steps down from a king, though he liked to refer to himself as a king. Herod ruled Galilee and Perea for about 45 years, managing it for the mighty Roman Empire. Immediately in this passage, we hear of conflict between John the Baptist and Herod. Herod had divorced his wife, to marry Herodias. He had married, in other words, his half-brother's wife, and this was in contravention of Jewish law. You see this in Leviticus 18.16, Leviticus 20.21. John saw fit to apply this law to Herod's unlawful marriage. Herod's example is remarkably contemporary despite being 2,000 years old. We can understand in 21st century terms, that this is a kind of first century version of divorce for love, emotivist love, falling out of love with somebody for one reason or another, falling into love for another reason, a a, a framework of marriage which is very, very, very common today, even in evangelical circles. Herod was a proud man. He wanted to destroy John the Baptist because John said to him that it was not lawful for him to be married to Herodias, verse 4. R.T. France, the New Testament exegete, notes that John's comments came in the context of public denunciation. So according to France, what what I'm saying to you is that John the Baptist is not merely saying this to Herod, you know, taking him by the arm and walking him into the corner and saying, Herod, you shouldn't be doing this, man. This is not lawful. This does not glorify God, whom you should be worshiping. It appears from the Greek, that John was saying this in public, in front of people. And now we're getting a sense for why Herod especially did not like this testimony and did not like John. And in fact, this was not an isolated denunciation for John. The Greek verb here is an imperfect and could be translated that John kept on telling Herod of his sin. Okay, so now we're getting a full picture understanding of just how bold John the Baptist was. 
This is a remarkable part of the life of John the Baptist, the wilderness prophet, the foreteller of the Messiah. John the Baptist was a wild man. He ate locusts and he lived out of doors, as we might say. You see this in Matthew 3. He is an interesting figure in a Bible full of fascinating, true-to-life figures. John was the figure who announced that Jesus the Messiah was coming. So John, note this, John had a special mission given him by God that only John the Baptist had. No one else had it. It was an explicitly spiritual message. It was to call sinners to repentance in the name of the coming Messiah. That's John's explicit ministry. That's what he was supposed to do. He did that. He fulfilled his charge. He's in the Bible. End of story, right? Wrong. It's not all John said. That's not all John preached. Even after Jesus began his work, John the Baptist was willing to speak up in terms of theology and ethics, but his public courage ensured that John had enemies. Herod himself, mark this in terms of your own witness, mark this response, okay, friends? Herod wanted to kill John, and so did Herodias. So her daughter targeted John by dancing a lewd dance that Herod enjoyed. You see this in verse 6. This is what the text is modestly saying when we read that the dance pleased Herod. This is a lewd dance. It pleased Herod so much that he gave the daughter of Herodias a blank check for her wishes. And of course, we know what Herod requests. We know what Herodias wants. We know what the daughter says. Verse 8, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So all the interests of these different aggrieved parties who hate John the Baptist for his Christian ministry, we can call it that, all their interests intersect Herod, Herodias, and the daughter, and the sentence comes down to John. John was already in prison from excavations in Galilee. It appears that he was chained to the prison wall because he had been denouncing Herod's sinful uh, conduct. So, John was living his best life now, I guess you could say. He was already in miserable conditions. But then came the death sentence, and John was beheaded. Not only this, it is not enough that John is killed. His head is brought out on a platter in front of a a group of people. This scene is a disgusting picture of the wages of sin. And church tradition goes further. It records that John's tongue was cut out of his mouth by Herodias, and she then stabbed John's tongue with her hairpin. So it comes to pass that the first man to proclaim the Messiah's coming is also the first to die as a martyr. Following this, the disciples honor John by burying his body, and they go to tell Jesus. After they tell him, he withdraws to a desolate place. Jesus is distraught over the death of John. Jesus is not an impassive God-man. Jesus is profoundly affected by sin in his life and ministry. Form your doctrine of Christ and doctrine of God even accordingly. In this wild passage, one theme shines through. 
John the Baptist was courageous and his prophetic witness, his willingness to die for a biblical theology of marriage still speaks. 20 centuries later, two millennia later, it speaks to us today. Let's now consider five takeaways, five applications, insights in light of this heroic example, John's example. First, we too are called to have a prophetic ministry. You, in the ministry, you are called to have a John the Baptist-like prophetic ministry. I believe that this passage in Matthew, of course, is very important for understanding John. It is surely important for understanding the life and ministry of Christ. This is the first bitter hint, in fact, of what is to come, not only for the foreteller of the Messiah, but the Messiah himself. Here's a new covenant sign. The narrow path is a crimson trail. This is not, in other words, merely an isolated event in the days of Jesus. This is a sign. This is a foreshadowing. As in his life, the death of John the Baptist foreshadows the death of Christ. But John's sordid outcome is not only relevant for the gospel story, Matthew's gospel. John speaks to us from the pages of Scripture. He's calling us to a prophetic ministry like his. He is calling the church, the church today in 2018, to be the prophetic church. This means that he is summoning us to embrace the ministry of truth. Truth in every area of life. And I don't mean your truth, and I don't mean my truth, and I don't mean truthiness. I mean absolute truth. Being prophetic, if you want a definition, means that we speak the truth when people don't want to hear it. How's that for a fancified theological definition of being prophetic? We speak the truth when people don't want to hear it. At the corporate level, this means that the local church is a little factory of prophetic witness. Over time, with care from the Bible, we develop a robust theological and ethical outlook for our people, and this approach differs from our modern world. We are now regularly in the habit of reducing an entire field, many different issues with many different complexities, to, I kid you not, this is true, 280 characters on social media. Further, if you don't agree with my 280-character summary, I'm going to torch you and write you off. Now, some issues need to be directly stated. Let that be clear. Some things can be stated in a propositional sentence. In effect, a good number of biblical truths can. But others, the further away we get from the direct, explicit teaching of Scripture, defy such easy characterization. So let's just remember right now in this moment together as we're talking about being prophetic in a day when everybody thinks they're prophetic, that we have a localized center, an earthly center as believers. It's the local church. It's not social media. Social media is fine. Social media is good, I think. Social media is kind of good. Let me amend that. But social media is not your center as a believer. No one in here who is a Christian goes to the church of Twitter. At least you shouldn't be. Our local churches where we are members, we believe in biblical membership, we're Baptists. Our local churches are our earthly center as Christians. Do we need prophetic witness? Mm-hmm. Yes, 
We do. But we need fewer hot takes, and we need way more carefully thought out sermons and Sunday school lessons and Friday night teaching times and conversations with godly elders at the local coffee shop. We need way more of that today. Please do not misunderstand. The world may not follow you in your attempt to be a bit more careful than maybe all of us are tempted to be today, all of us. But you want a little irony this morning with your coffee? Even the way we engage people is prophetic as believers. Do you know that the way you engage people today is actually more prophetic probably than it ever was? Because in our day and age, in 2018, we are so used to people flaming those, even in evangelical circles, who disagree with them, who disagree in particular with their political position, whatever the issue may be. We're so used to that, that even if you are very convictional, yes, which I would encourage you to be, I teach theology in order that my students will be convictional, but even if you are very convictional, if you treat somebody as an image bearer, as if they're made in the image of God, every last person, that will be prophetic. That will have an effect. I'm trying to tell you, that will stand out today. Let's remember these things, even at the outset, as we talk about prophetic witness today. Second, second takeaway here. The ministry of truth implies that ministry is not about us. So tempting to make ministry about you, particularly, actually, as success comes. This gets harder as things go better, so to speak, in your ministry. Now, we want to preach the truth, yes, but we also want to be popular. But the ministry of Christ is the ministry, fundamentally, of truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you have entered the ministry in the name of Christ, you are part of the ministry of truth. Accepting this fact is going to help set you on the right course. We all have a desire to be extra, as the kids say today, but as believers, we are called to accept our limitations when it comes to ministry, when it comes to the very nature of ministry. For example, let me give you an example. I am five foot seven. Praise God. Thank you, brother. I am now good with that. <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious. I used to buy size medium t-shirts in a vain attempt to fool people in thinking I was a bit taller than I was. To be clear, I fooled no one. I listed my height in high school basketball, the peak of my glorious athletic career. I listed it as 5'10". I might have been five foot five at that point. I have since grown to the epic proportions you see before you. Now, in my mid-30s, I know that I'm not impressive. I know I don't have to make myself look bigger than I am. It's a foolish, humorous point, but it's honestly kind of a true one. I can buy size small. I can even shop at the boys' rack. No, I'm not even going to say that. I can't. I can't do that at Banana Republic or J. Crew. That's not true. Tell the truth. Tell the truth, Strand. I'm not the point. I've realized that in my life. It's not about me looking good. My point is humorous, as I say, but it's true. Ministry, life, life itself is not about me. 
It's not about me looking good. True ministry, the most important stuff there is on the earth, the most important calling anyone can enter on the planet is about God. We have entered, in whatever form you're in, whatever role you're in in the ministry, we have entered what Edwards called divine business. Divine business. Jesus is the point. Jesus is our image. I'm not the brand. You're not the brand. Jesus is the brand. This is why, this truth, is why you can tell the truth to literally anyone in the mold of John. King, governor, U.S. president, single mother, Starbucks barista, homeless man on the street, you name it. You can tell the truth to anyone because you have died to yourself. Ministry is not about you. You're trying as best you possibly can by the grace of God in you, the power of Christ in you, to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth in love. But this isn't something fancy. There's not a super nuanced way, in many cases at least, to tell the truth. There are lies and there is the truth when it comes to the clear teaching of Scripture. Friends, you are freed by the cross of Christ to be a truth teller. You are freed to do this. You don't have an image or a reputation to maintain. Christ is your life. Think with me for a minute about the difference between a faithful, uh, a prophetic witness and an Instagram personality today. Celebrities, to use last night's language, they are legion, make life fundamentally about them. Celebrities build what? Their brand. If things go well, who increases? Whose reputation skyrockets? Theirs. They may even get rich off of all of this. Let me contrast that with... Um, Maybe the folks in the kingdom of Christ who have the toughest role, a missionary. How's a missionary different from a celebrity? A missionary doesn't build their brand. They advance Christ's kingdom, don't they? If things go well on the mission field, Christ increases. And missionaries don't usually get rich. I don't know a single rich missionary. I've met many in my life. Missionaries often struggle in earthly terms, don't they? Can I suggest something? Let's make missionaries heroes again in the evangelical movement. Alongside them, let's make prophetic witnesses from Scripture and church history our models. Talk about missionaries from the pulpit. Tell your people who is giving up their life for the sake, for the cause of Christ and Him crucified. We're not ultimately building a brand, friends. We're advancing a kingdom by the power of God in us through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. This is why you can speak the truth on hard matters. It's going to cost you, but do not be confused. Following Christ has already cost you everything. Remember your soteriology. Remember all dimensions of it. How did Paul identify himself at the beginning of Romans, his greatest theological statement in all the Bible? Paul, a bondservant. Paul, a slave, Romans 1.1, of Christ. Remember that, and then remember your eschatology. You have lost everything in worldly terms. You already lost it, whether you're aware of that 
or not, but you have actually gained everything in Christ. And that will soon, sooner than you know, sooner than your people sometimes remember, that will soon be fully realized. What a promise we have in eschatology. How different this is from secular eschatology, where your only hope is really, I suppose, to make the world a slightly better place, something like this, delay the blowing up of the cosmos by overheating uh, in slightly less years than previously. I mean, you think about the actual secular hope of the fallen man who we once were, and you recognize we have been given an incredible harvest in the future. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry contact. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today.